morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Dan, and I'm pastor here. And uh, hi. <laughs> and I'd like to just uh, bring us up to speed what we've been looking at over the past four weeks. So four weeks ago, or there or thereabouts, we, we learned that as we read the Bible, God uses it to break up the soil of our fearful and divided hearts so that we can be part of his ongoing harvest. Then the week after that, we learned this, that slowly but oh so surely, the kingdom of the servant king is growing, and it's going to be a what? A bumper harvest. Great. The week after that, uh, last week, we learned that Jesus wants us to quit trying to row ourselves to safety and to make him the skipper of our lives. And this week, we are going to learn this, that Jesus will battle insurmountable odds for just one hopeless person, and it's totally worth it. Let's say that Altogether, Jesus will battle insurmountable odds for just one hopeless person, and it's totally worth it. There we go, awesome. So throughout our journey through Mark, we've been witnessing Jesus' power over various things. Last week, it was, it was the forces of nature, and this week, it's the spirit world, and next week, it's over sickness. So it's this theme, there's three things. Last week was uh, Jesus' power over nature. This week it's Jesus' power over the spirit world. And next week it's Jesus' power over sickness. And so Jesus is proclaiming his supreme authority over the whole of creation. That's where we are headed. Um, What was introduced by the fall back in the book of Genesis, Jesus is saying in, in Mark, that he's able to undo, that he's able to reverse, that he's able to restore, that our, he's saying that our broken world um, will, will both one day physically and spiritually be restored until it's completely whole and as he wants it. But until that moment of complete restoration, what Jesus is doing is he's restoring one life at a time so that he can shine his life and hope into it. Um, what he will one day do on a macro scale, on a universal scale right now, today in our midst, also in the Bible, he's doing on a micro scale, on a personal scale. But the wonderful truth is this, is that if there are enough micro transformations, they all add up to a macro transformation that whole families and whole communities will acknowledge Jesus as king. Last week, we heard Jeff share in Church in the Park how his skeptical investigation into the claims of the Bible and the claims of Jesus has consistently led him into a place of being convinced that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, uh, that, Jesus has been tr- uh, that Jeff has been transformed through the work of Jesus in his life. But today we're going to look at a very different case, very different circumstances, but they end up at the same place with the same result. And this result we can read in Mark chapter 5, verse 20, which says this, so the man went away and began to tell how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. So the man went away and began to tell how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. That's what happened in Jeff's life and that's what happened, that's, that's what we are going to find out will happen in this man's life. So it's a bit of a spoiler alert. Now, I realize that many of us are the, are the products of our upbringing. Uh, we were taught to really doubt you know, the supernatural and the spirit realm and you know, we were taught to 
maybe question if it's really there or not. And some of us may have finished watching a horror movie, if that's your thing. And so you finish watching a horror movie and then you come back into reality and go, thank goodness that's not real. Thank goodness this is real. This real life where demon possession doesn't happen, where heads don't spin round and where pea soup generally is not vomited. But as we read today's passage, I want to tell you that I'm operating with an assumption that there is a spirit world, that it is very real, that there are angels, there are demons, there are spirits on the side of God and good, and there are spirits on the side of evil and Satan. Now, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he invites us to view life on earth as enemy-occupied, enemy-occupied territory. He says that is what this world is. And then he he goes on to say this, that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a campaign of sabotage, end quote. And so Jesus is the grand saboteur. He is, as chapter 3, verse 27 tells us, in the business of plundering the strong man's house, that is Satan's house, with a view of leading oppressed people into safety. Now, I've been in places where I can tangibly feel evil there. I can really feel it. Most of the time I don't, you know, I'm not one of these kind of spiritually sensitive people that that can, you know, feel that kind of stuff. That's not who I am. But I've been in places um, where I've experienced that, where I felt evil. I remember Wendy and I were walking in the island of Trinidad and we walked, and as we were walking along, we saw this woman who looked really disheveled, uh, she, was, she was talking to herself, but that was not the issue. Around her, there was a sense of malevolence that was so, so strong. And, and even now, when I remember um, what that was like, it still can send a bit of a shiver down my spine. Now, I'm not calling her evil. That's not what I'm doing. But what I'm saying is that I think, I believe, she was under control of something evil, that some force had her in its control, and this force was was not a good force. Now, there's this guy called Clinton E. Arnold from Talbot School of Theology, and he tries to explain uh, the problem that we have uh, in talking about evil spirits uh, in a world where the worldview is primarily materialistic. He says this, it's a fairly lengthy quote, but I think it's helpful. He says this, in the ancient world, if someone complained of hearing voices in their head or became suddenly and inexplicably ill, then the, then the diagnosis was easy. That person was possessed by an evil spirit. Uh, a folk healer was needed who knew the proper incantations and rituals and formulas for dealing with this kind of spirit. But now, Professor Arnold writes, we know better. Voices in the head are a common phenomenon that can be explained in a variety of ways, ranging from a neurological disorder, such as schizophrenia, to a psychological condition, such as dissociation or post-traumatic stress disorder. Meteoric advances in science in the past three centuries have moved beyond the simplistic and primitive ways of evaluating life's issues. 
Consequently, this is still him writing, many people today believe, uh, consider a belief in a literal Satan flanked by hosts of demons to be on the same par as believing in Santa Claus or a flat earth or the tooth fairy. And this is precisely where the difficulty surfaces for Christians um, from the satanic Satan, uh, from the satanic serpent in the Garden of Eden to where, where the devil is banished into the lake of fire, the Bible speaks about personified evil from beginning up until the, till the end. And that's what he says is the problem for us who believe in the Bible is that we're at odds with, uh, with, with what, um, you know, what popular knowledge nowadays says. Now, Arnold writes a lot more about this, but I find this summary very helpful. Uh, and this is him writing again, just as it's beyond the scope of science to really determine the ultimate question of whether God exists or not. Um, so science cannot adjudicate the question of whether the Holy Spirit angels or evil spirits exist. Certainly, he says, science has performed a valuable role in helping us understand certain phenomena that were formerly interpreted as demonic activity, but science cannot rule out potential spirit involvement on every issue. In other words, voices in one's head cannot always and invariably be explained by the phenomena of dissociation, chemical imbalance, or psychological disorders. End of lengthy quote, everyone breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> in short, what he's saying is this, what we need to allow for the possibility of evil spiritual influence and involvement in our physical world. That's really what he's saying, but he sounds so much more intelligent and wordy and uh, verbose. But that's really what he's saying. Now, I wanna tell you the story of Crazy Dave, okay? Now, the Bible doesn't call him Crazy Dave, but it's a good name for our purposes. And when I say, and when I call him Crazy Dave, that's what I imagine that the people that knew him might have called it. I'm not saying we should call people crazy, or I'm not saying that people that, uh, that, that suffer with, with mental illness are crazy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that in that time, I would have been surprised if a man like this wouldn't have had a name like that, a nickname. So I wanna tell you the story of Crazy Dave. Um, now, I won't be reading whole verses out, but they are threaded through this narrative. So what I want you to do is to follow along as I share this story. And this account is found in, Matthew, in Mark chapter five, verses one through 20. And let me pray. Lord, I thank you that, uh, that um, you are the king of the universe, Lord. And, and Lord, I thank you that you want to speak truth into our life here this morning, Lord God. I, Lord, I thank you that, that you shine light into the darkness, that you bring hope into the hopeless cases. Lord, and I pray as we read this account of, of Crazy Dave, that we would be encouraged in our faith and that you would lead us to an appropriate response. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the disciples are still reeling from witnessing Jesus shouting down a storm. Who is this? They ask. Even the wind and waves obey him. And so they pull up their boat onto the shore on the east side of the lake in the Gentile area known as the Gerasenes. This area is known as, 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 the, as the Ten Cities, uh, is known as, as the Ten Cities. They are now outside of Jewish Land. This is, this is no longer Jewish. They are in the Gentile area. They've left what is known and they're now in the unknown. And so Jesus is 
knees are barely wet from stepping out of the boat when out of the hillside, out comes running this man. Now, it, we find out later that this man sleeps in the tombs. He sleeps among you know, the corpses and the dead bodies. Uh, he's an unclean Gentile living among unclean Jews, uh, uncl- among unclean tombs. And so as a Jew, Jesus and all his Jewish followers should have been steering as far clear of this man as they were able to, but there they are in the midst of it. Now, this man knows loneliness. If you're living in a tomb, then you can assume that you're feeling quite lonely. And this man has known years and years of hurt. Um, You know, Jesus and the men following him can see these fresh abrasion marks from shackles on his wrists and his ankles. They can also see older marks left from previous attempts to hold him down, but each time he breaks free, and right now he's shackle free. And so as he comes loping down the hillside, yeah, the disciples kind of draw back with fear. This is, it's, it's a powerful man. You know, they can see this kind of wiry superhuman strength to him. His nearly naked body is marked with fresh wounds and with old wounds, and he's still holding a bloody stone in his hand that seems to be an instrument of self-harm. No, the disciples are afraid. They're not sure what will happen next. Is he going to attack them? Why is he running towards them? Now, with this fresh memory of Jesus stilling that storm, they quietly try to put Jesus between him and them, hoping that they're not making it too obvious. Now, as this man arrives in their group, um, they realize that they've subconsciously taken this kind of stance of... um, maybe protecting themselves, but as he stands there, as he's panting with his eyes wide open and spittle on his chin, Jesus firmly utters a simple command. He says to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. This is the same tone of voice that he used when he told the wind and the waves to stop. Then he said, peace be still. He said, be quiet. And now he's saying, come out. And at that the wild man falls on his knees. Now, Jesus' followers have seen people fall on their knees in adoration and worship, but this isn't that. This is something else. This is a different kind of kneeling. This is the, this is the kneeling of a weaker being kneeling in front of a more powerful being. This isn't worship. This is fear. This is someone who's saying, I have no other choice. I have to kneel. This is like someone pleading not to have their head chopped off. That's the kind of kneeling which we're seeing here. Now this man looks up from where he is in this kneeling stance and he shouts, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? And in a flash, Jesus' followers realize something. They realize that this stranger or the spirit within him has answered their question on the lake. They ask the question, who is this man? And now, these, now this man, this stranger, this Gentile, this filthy Gentile, or the spirit within him, which is even worse, is answering the question that they should have known. So they're a little bit embarrassed, maybe, that this lunatic knows more about Jesus' identity than they do themselves, but they're probably too afraid to say anything. And while that's happening, Jesus looks steadily at this man, and instead of 
uh, telling this man what he wants, instead of answering his question, Jesus asks another question like a politician. What is your name? Now there's something about Jesus' tone that tells his followers that he's not asking the man this question. He's asking someone else this question. Jesus is aiming this question at the malevolent spirit inside this man, not the man himself. And so because this spirit recognizes that it's in the presence of someone who's far, far greater than it, the spirit is totally honest. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And as he says this, those with Christ can hear not just one voice, but they can hear numerous voices all intertwined with each other. My name is Legion, for we are many. And it sends shivers down their spine. This is not good. They know that legion is a Roman military term that refers to a garrison of between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. And so this gives them an insight into the number of spirits of demons that are in this man, that are torturing this man. But then the spirits inside this man start to really bargain with Christ. They start maybe begging. These spirits, these these demons that have been such a cause of fear in this community for many years sounds really pitiful as they plead with Jesus. And this is what their request is. Send us into the pigs, allow us to go into them. Now, what the demons are asking at this point is that they don't get sent into the holding place, into the abyss, into this place of confinement where they would be held otherwise until judgment day. They are asking for freedom to stay here on earth. And so Jesus nods his assent. And at that moment that Jesus says, okay, his, his, uh, his, his friends, his followers, are aware of this max, mass exodus from this poor man. They can't see anything, but they can see that what was in him just a second ago is no longer there anymore. And seconds later, which is the amount of time it takes for three to 6,000 spirits to vacate a man and to relocate over to 2,000 pigs, in that time, or that time later, they start to hear these pigs squealing like they're being slaughtered. This, this noise is shocking, it's unnerving. And then straight away, these pigs run down a nearby cliff and straight into the lake, into the sea, where they all drown. Now, the irony is not lost on those who are watching um, that these spirits, these demons, have asked for freedom to locate to a new host, only to inadvertently drive that host to instant ruin. And what that shows us is that this power is, is that the, the, the power of these spirits that were inside this man was so strong, was so really overwhelming that it drove those pigs to suicide. And what's maybe funny here, if you can see anything funny in this at all, is that what they asked is that they would be kept out of this place of holding until judgment day. Well, now they've driven their host into the lake, and so where do they go? Presumably, they go to this holding place until judgment day. And so we can start to understand why this man was harming himself all those years, because he's a human with the mental faculties of a human, and he could just 
hardly hold them in. Like, it's, a, it's amazing that he's still alive. But as soon as they're sent into a lesser being, straight away that suicide happens. And so Jesus' followers watches the pig herders, which are those who are responsible for the well-being of the pigs, and they're all filthy Gentiles. You know, they're not only Gentiles, but they're looking after pigs, which is really, really gross. And then there's these, these tombs over here. It's just bad, bad, bad. And so these f- filthy Gentiles run over the hillside in the direction of the n- nearest town. These, these men cannot run fast enough. And in no time at all, all that's left in this, in this space are the disciples, are Jesus and this man who suddenly does not look as wild as he did just a few moments ago. Sure, his hair is still crazy as a thorn bush, and he's still unkempt, and he's still filthy, he still stinks, but now there's a sanity in his eyes that was not there before. His eyes are clear. Now, someone in Jesus' group, maybe even Jesus himself, wrap him in clothes, and suddenly this man starts to look almost human, This man and Jesus look each other in the eye. Not a lot is said, but a lot is being said. Now it's not long until the rumbles of a mob can be heard coming from where the pig herders ran to. Now this crowd arrives and they see this incredibly powerful scene. As it says in the Bible, the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons is sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Instead of rushing around, this man is now sat down. Instead of lurking in the shadows naked, this man is now wearing clothes. And instead of muttering and jabbering and murmuring to himself, this man is suddenly in his right mind. Now the disciples expect the townsfolk to rush over to this man, you know, this local boy, and to give him a hug and to thank Jesus but they notice that this crowd is hanging back. They are afraid. And the disciples recognize the same fear in the townsfolk's eyes that they experienced just a few hours ago when they said to themselves on the lake, who is this man? Only now it's not the wind and the waves who are obeying Jesus, it's demons. Now the pig herders start pointing at Jesus like he's been caught red-handed in some kind of a crime and they, and they start accusing him. It was him. We saw it. We was over there minding our own business. Then over, come, over he comes and says this thing to Crazy Dave and then Crazy Dave kneels and they seem to be talking back and forth. And then Crazy Dave suddenly seems to relax like he's suddenly calm or something. And then just a second later, all these pigs are screaming blue murder and throwing themselves off the cliff into the lake like a bunch of suicidal lemmings. It was mental, and it's all because of him. Now the crowd starts to get really amped up and really agitated, and the disciples start to get nervous again. Now the source of the disciples' fear has now transitioned from Jesus to this guy called Crazy Dave, and to Jesus again, and now the source of their fear is the crowd. Now, the locals sound hysterical as they swarm around Jesus saying, look, 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 just, just go, please, just leave us. We don't want your type around here upsetting the order of things. We're just simple country folk, and yeah, Crazy Dave was a bit of a problem, but we knew how to handle him. 
And as they, as they hear this, Jesus' followers can't help but look at the shackle marks and the bloody wounds on crazy Dave, now sane Dave's arms and his body. That this crowd are more concerned about the pigs and the loss of income than they are about this miraculous restoration of Dave. Get out of here. Get out, leave. We don't want you here. Just go. And so Jesus walks back down the hillside, gets back into the boat, and the disciples realize that they've sailed all this way across the lake and they've braved this storm, risked their lives, been afraid for their lives, all because Jesus wanted to reach this one guy, Crazy Dave. And now they're about to head back. They went all that way for one guy, for Crazy Dave. And it's as if, it's as if Dave knows what they're, that they're thinking about him. And so he splashes into the water just as they're about to push off and he grabs hold of the gunwale of the boat and he pleads with them. He says, take me with you, Jesus, please. I'll follow you. I'll be a really good disciple. Just please don't leave me here. Please take me with you. And so the disciples start to shift around, making room ready for Dave. And so, so Peter reaches down, ready to help him onto the boat, but with Dave still holding onto the side of the boat, Jesus says to him, no Dave, you're not coming with us. Uh, And the disciples look at each other and they're confused. What is going on here? Jesus is rejecting someone who wants to follow him? And without paying his disciples any mind, Jesus turns around and he continues speaking to this man. He says, go home to your own people, look at them, They need to hear your story. You need to tell them how much the Lord has done for you. They can see this outward transformation, but you need to tell them what has happened inside. You need to tell them that you cannot hear the voices anymore. You need to tell them that your mind is at peace because I've just spoken peace into it. You need to tell them that what I did for you, I can do for them as well. You are my ambassador now there in the Gerasenes. You are my first Gentile convert. You are the first sign that, or you are the sign that I haven't come just to be a political Messiah for the Jews, but I've come to be a universal Messiah for everyone. You can tell them that I did not come to throw off the shackles of Roman rule, but I came to throw off the shackles of those deepest, of those darkest things that enslave everyone. I came to bring freedom from sin by inviting people into my kingdom. I know that they don't understand yet, but if you are faithful to your story and to point people towards me, then I know that many people will experience freedom from fear and freedom to love me like you have. Tell them. Dave, that I had mercy on you. And then perhaps they might believe that I can have mercy on them as well. And so formerly crazy Dave, now just Dave, releases his grip on the boat and he lets Jesus and the disciples float away. And as the disciples open the sail, they can see Dave join that crowd. They can see people start to approach him like he's some kind of a wild animal that has now been tamed. They can see them Uh, maybe tentatively touch him on his wounded wrist. They can see people asking him questions and over the sound of the lapping of the waves, they can hear people in the crowd going, shut up, shut up. And how did that happen? Tell us. 
The disciples can tell that the people were amazed. They know that this will be a story that gets told and retold, that this story is like a seed that has been planted. Even now, it's just getting planted. And they remember Jesus' words that it would bear a harvest of 40 or 60 or 100 times what was planted. The disciples know that the house of the strong man has just been plundered and that Dave is now a freed soul. And for sure, he would be bringing people along with him simply by telling people how much the Lord had done for him and how he had had mercy on him. They knew that just by Dave being Dave, and Dave telling his Jesus story, that lives would be changed, and that others would get their own Jesus story as a result. They could see him showing them his new clothes. They could see him as he mimed a request to maybe get his hair cut. They could see people starting to laugh at a joke that now just Dave had made. And just before they got out of view, they could see Dave and his community turn around and head back into the village. That's the story of Crazy Dave. Now, what does this story show us? Here's here's just a few things. This account of Crazy Dave shows us that demon possession is real. While not every sickness or mental illness can or should be explained by, by by, by spiritual things that... What we read in the scripture is that it's clear that there is a spiritual realm. Some is under control of God and some is under control of Satan. And uh, that Satan's spirits are known as, as, as impure spirits, as demons. So Crazy Dave shows us that demon possession is real. And for us, what that means is that sometimes we can allow Satan to have influence or even control over our lives. But, and that is the bad news. So we do have to be careful, but the good news is that these demons are living on numbered days, and one day they will be cast down to hell, which is created for them after being judged by God. But while they have a a measure of freedom, they are going to be trying to lead humans astray away from the Lord. So, So that's the first thing that Dave shows us, is that demons are real. Secondly, is that crazy Dave shows us that although people can give power to demons in their own life, that that power that these spirits may have over them is no match for for the supreme power that we have in Christ Jesus. As believers in Jesus Christ, if if you're a believer of Jesus, then you can say this, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any power, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise that we have if we are Christ's. Now the demons themselves know that Jesus is Lord. They're far more aware of that than we are, which is why Legion bowed down in Jesus' presence because of fear. Um, Now, Jesus himself says this in Matthew 12, verse 28. He says this, if, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of, of God has come upon you. And I love this because what this means is that when we pray the Lord's prayer and we pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, part of what we're praying for is freedom from spiritual oppression. This is God's kingdom coming. This is what it looks like. And it's amazing. So number three, that the wonder of being freed from spiritual oppression 
from, from spiritual oppression that this wonder, that this glory is nothing compared to the glory of the gospel of Christ. Okay, it's not even on the same plane. We would be like, whoa, that's so amazing. Someone just got freed. Someone that was, you know, crazy Dave is now just Dave. It's just amazing. We would be mind blown. But what's even more mind blowing is the message of the gospel. This is what Luke chapter 10 verse 17 tells us. It says that the 72 returned from this missions trip that Jesus sent them on. They returned with joy and they said, Lord, even, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then he says this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you, however. Okay, so they're saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So when we see people being freed from, from uh, the effect of spiritual, sp- spiritual malevolence, we are reminded that this gospel, that God loves us and has made a way for us to be reconciled to him, is so much more amazing than anything we might see there. Also, Crazy Dave tells us that as much as it's important to have theological truth and to be grounded in the Bible, it's key that we're grounded in the Bible. So as much as it's true that it's key for us to be grounded in the Bible, God can soundly save someone who doesn't know everything yet. All that, you know, if you read at the end of this passage, all that, all that Dave knew at that moment was that Jesus had freed him from whatever was in him, had restored him and shown him mercy. That was the end of his knowledge. He had not gone to Bible college. He had not done Alpha. And Jesus says, now go and tell people what, what has happened. He was ready for mission straight away. Now, there's this guy called, called, called A.W. Tozer, and he sheds some light on how this works. He says this, you can take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who could never conceive of the first premise of your logical arguments so that it would be totally impossible for them to really decide on logical grounds whether Christianity was of God or not, but preach Christ to them and they will be transformed, and they will believe, and they will, and they will put away their wickedness and change from evil to righteousness and get happy about it all. They will learn to read and write and study their Bibles and become leaders and pillars in their own church, be transformed and made over. How? Because of the instant witness of the Holy Ghost into their hearts. This is the new thing that came, sir. This is how Tozer writes. This is the new thing that came, sir. God took religion from the realm of the external and made it internal. And so what he's saying is that you don't have to know everything. Just know that Christ has saved you and that he's had mercy on you. So in short, there is power in the saving message of Jesus. There's power in the gospel. And this power can kick out spirits, kick out demons, and it can convince even the most skeptical like Jeff that Jesus is the king of the kingdom that he, and that he calls us to be representatives in our community. And the last truth that we learn from Crazy Dave is this, and I've already mentioned it, but I really want to drive this home, is that after encountering the life-transforming message of the cross, Jesus sends us back into our communities armed with our story. Dave had a story to tell. 
He had people who were ready to listen. And as our friends see God work powerfully in our lives, this creates an interest. And it's into this space that that interest creates that we can speak our transformation stories. Later, we will see Jesus returning to this area and we will see that the people are much more willing to have Jesus, the miracle maker, do his stuff. And is the, has this change happened because of the testimony of Crazy Dave? It's very likely. So my last words to you this morning are this. Follow close to Christ and allow him to do miracles in your life. Pray prayers that only he can answer. Expect great things that are too great for coincidence. Trust God that he will meet all of your needs. Rely on him for everything. And when these things happen, when these prayers are answered, when big and small miracles take place, tell these stories. Because it's these stories that amaze people. And it's these stories that create space in the life of people to hear the truth of the gospel. So if you're, and if you're here wondering today whether Jesus loves you or whether you're beyond hope, may the account of crazy Dave, this uh, demon-possessed guy with between 3,000 and 6,000 demons inside him, may he speak courage into your life. Humanly speaking, Dave was beyond hope. The best that he could hope for was a life of torment and fear and chains and tombs. But Jesus braved a storm condition and an angry mob just so that he could reach this one man. He didn't wait until Dave cleaned up his act or got all the demons sorted inside of him. He went straight to him. And the Bible tells us that what Jesus did on the cross is even more amazing even more wild, even more crazy. For God did not send his son into the world to, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's John three seventeen. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners in the tombs, crazy, wounded, hurt, Christ, he died for us. And Mark 10, 45 says this. This is our theme verse of, of the servant kings. We go through Mark. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 